0: By the way, I am looking for a new name for my show, so any of you creative minds out there in the comments today, submit your comments below on what name I should name my show. And for our audience today, it is the first time I am on Voice of the People Radio, VOP USA, so to my audience there, hello, welcome, this is your first time on my show, glad to have you and to discuss politics even further. Um, Today I have a very special guest, one of my favorite Twitter mutuals. Um, the fighters against liberalism, and one of my best political educators to educate the left. My man EQ is with me on stream today, and the reason why he's here with us today is to discuss his many articles that he has on his Substack that he's created. Many of you know Substack is a great useful tool for writers, journalists, uh, different people to use it for political education, and it allows other leftists to um, donate to spread the message and to help independent journalists. So this is my man, EQ, how are you?
1: I'm doing real good, man. Uh, I'm super pumped to be here. Uh, I love everything that you guys are building. Um, I love your show. So this is this is gonna be a really, we're gonna have a good time today. So,
0: have uh, <laughs> so uh, how about you tell the audience uh, who you are, um, what really brought you to left, your background, and why you wanted to uh, create a substat?
1: Sure, um, so I, I've been, uh, I guess, left moving um, since the get-go. When I when I was much much younger, um, you know, I I was I've grown grew up in a in a pretty I guess we call it strict Christian household. But um, my even though nowadays I, I I'm an atheist. But my my father always had like very very strong what I think he would consider like leftist morals. It was uh, caring for. Uh, the homeless it was uh, recognizing the value of like diversity and opinions and conversations um, so when i got into college um, i went through a very very short uh, liberal phase as i was in my undergrad getting a, a degree in political science um that last i think maybe like a semester or so it was around 2008 uh when obama was running and i was just like oh man maybe maybe this democrat is not so bad uh, whoops. <laughs> yeah, and that, that didn't work out so good. Uh, so yeah, after that, I I went kind of right back to anarchism. I've always been, I think, to some degree, um, I've I've always flirted with anarchism as like the kind of predominant uh, ideology that that drives the way I do things. I just I don't believe that as people. Uh, I believe two things primarily. One that people are mostly good. Um and that you know even if nobody's looking, like if given the opportunity, people can do the morally right thing. Um, I do believe that there is an objective moral reality, and then I you know I believe that we don't need um, people telling us what to do, right? Like I don't I don't think I need somebody who's like barking orders at me uh, in order for me to do the right things. So um, yeah, I've always kind of been that way. Um, I do have a ton of. I guess, political education. I have uh, two bachelor's degrees, one in political science, one in uh, philosophy. And then I have uh, two master's degrees, one in economics uh, with a focus in public utility regulation and then uh, one in political science. So it's, uh, my my political science master's is really focused on American political theory and political history. So uh, it's uh, really kind of uh, honed in on um how america got to be the way that it is uh through that lens of political theory um as far as like my activism things that i've done i've always been pretty politically active Uh, recently i would say probably three or four years ago is when i really got like very active like i guess we call it woke but it's, it's when I really started getting out and like doing function, community organizing. And that was thanks to getting to meet and work with one of the co-founders of the Young Patriots organization. Uh, his name's High Thurman. He's an exceptionally awesome dude. Um, and so I, I worked a lot with him when I was living in Alabama. Uh, we did a lot. We built uh, a couple of different organizations. Uh, one of them was a homeless outreach group. Uh, the other is uh, one that I still sit on the board for. It's called the North Alabama School for Organizing, and it's one that I absolutely recommend everybody check out if you get a chance. And you can find that online at NASO. N A S O dot network. Um, yeah, that's clearly like it's a play on like NASA because that's like Huntsville is the home for NASA's uh, thing. So we, we decided we kind of steal some of their marketing. And then, um, but yeah, so that's, this is an incredible group of people, um, organizers from all across the country. Uh, We recently started uh, partnering with the University of the Four, which is uh, run by uh, activist Willie Baptist and some others. Um, And uh, basically the idea is to, we provide free, currently online uh, classes for people. Uh, They run six weeks, it's like an hour a week for Mm -hmm. six weeks um and they're free classes that basically teach you how to go out into your community and organize uh to fight whether it's for unionism or or whatever the case may be whatever leftist consciousness that you believe in uh, so once i get to know high and learn a lot more of that history of you know the young pictures, the the counter party uh learning about people like fred hampton um you know that really that was an eye-opener for me that um i don't need to just do online Facebook activism, or I don't need to just, like, periodically show up and vote for some good who doesn't care about me and isn't going to do anything to help me. Like, I can take um, my anarchist principles further into my own hands and, and, like, really get out and just, like, do that work myself. So, yeah, that's what I'm at.
0: I think that's great. And you mentioned that you are from Alabama. Um, I have family in Alabama, so that's awesome. I know exactly what you're... Um, Safford, Alabama, Montgomery, Wetumpka.
1: So yeah, down in the south part.
0: Exactly, down okay. in the southern part.
1: Yeah, I know. So, we're like, south. I got to Birmingham. Um, did a lot of work uh, with some folks out of Birmingham, and then down in like Um But yeah, and that was mostly the other work we did was was up in the Tennessee Valley. And yeah.
0: That's pretty great. And also, you probably know about the Bessemer Union Amazon Union Drive in Alabama as well, right?
1: Yeah, that's huge. Um, a couple of my good friends, um, one who I definitely recommend you eventually get to bring on the show as well. His name is David Story. Um, he's with the uh, IAMW, the, the Machinist Union, down there in, in um, Athens. Uh, he and a good buddy of mine, Jacob, who helped launch the IWW chapter in uh, Huntsville. Uh, they run a podcast called The Valley Labor Report, which I recommend checking out if you guys are really interested in like, Southern uh, labor stuff they've been covering lately, the coal mine strikes, um, some other good stuff down there. Um, but yeah, they were they were really big on doing good coverage and doing a lot of like, good work to help support uh, that Bessemer Union push, which uh, I don't know if you've heard recently, it looks like the National Labor Board is going to overturn that election. Uh, it seems like there's enough evidence to show that Amazon was basically illegally fucking up uh, that stuff. Like, uh, I was just reading a thing uh, yesterday where a couple of the organizers had put out like actual hard evidence saying that Amazon was threatening to fire people who voted yes on the union. So that was that might be
0: (laughs) my face right now.
1: Like, yeah, let's do it. Oh my
0: god, we need. I know. know.
1: We're we're. All the support and love for for the folks in Bessemer and i hope that that works out well for them um and we'll talk a little bit i think if you're interested in that i have a couple of thoughts on on some of the things that we do here on like the kind of online twitter left about how we also i think really hurt that drive um but yeah if you guys are, are looking for some things uh to get out and support and you really want to do some good like hard union activism uh, the coal miner strike that's in Southern Alabama, down in that area where your family's from. Yeah. They are in need of some funds and some supplies because uh, it looks like uh, they just had an injunction filed against them. Uh, the courts have ruled they're only allowed to have six people protesting at a time. What? Uh, they got in a lot of trouble because uh, they came <laughs> away like, two buses worth of scabs. So fuck yeah for you guys out there in Alabama throwing away the scabs. Um but yeah, they're, they're getting, they're getting hit pretty hard with a lot of union busting tactics. Um, and so, yeah, any support y'all can give them. There's a lot of different places you can look up online. I recommend that for the viewers.
0: Perfect. And for our audience, uh, the reason why I brought him on is because to mention again, he has a great sub stack. Uh, do you want to mention the Substack real quick? Name? Uh, uh,
1: yeah. So my, uh, my Substack is just earthquake.substack.com um, and the, uh, kind of processed by this or the what is process probably is the best word um, the theme I guess of that stack is uh, what I call practical anarchism it's uh, I guess I wouldn't call it a theory so much uh, but it's what I've been trying to develop over the last couple of years um, my anarchism has changed quite a bit from when I was younger uh, when I was when I was real young I was kind of a typical online good head anarchist, what, what most people would call an anarchiddy, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's just like a baller's bedtimes, you know. It's like, but getting to, like, having lived in Alabama for a little bit and getting to work with uh, black anarchists, um, pan-African anarchists, like uh, like folks who uh, like, actual, like actual working anarchist people who do anarchist work in the field, like that, that changed a lot of a lot of my views. And then even moving back to New Mexico here, um, getting to work with a lot of like um, indigenous uh, Chicano, uh, Latin um, anarchists, it's like, that's like having those inspirations and and seeing those things and reading those stories. That's led to one of the articles, which I ended up writing, which you guys will find, and then we'll we'll talk about here in a little bit, which is the difference between anarchism and white anarchism, uh, because I think they are unfortunately terribly different, and it's something that, as anarchists, we're going to need to kind of reckon with, for us white
0: ones. (laughs) Right, so what we're going to talk about first is this first article, which I'll put up on the screen, right here.
1: Yeah, this is... um. So yeah, this is uh the first one was uh, one of the first ones I wrote um was kind of having a conversation about leftism, you know what it is and what it isn't, and uh, who gets to belong. And so the I think that second part there, like who gets to so belong, it's a it's been a I don't know a real contentious point I think um, across the left whether you're online on like on Twitter or Facebook or you know whatever forum you're in. Um, versus real life versus different organizing groups like the DSA, DSL, whatever cases. The case is. Um, There's, I think there's been a push over the last little, let's call it two years, and maybe even a little bit longer, um, really since that kind of those midterm elections uh, under Trump, where we were seeing a lot of just you know, devastating losses uh, for progressives electoral politics. And the push there, instead of kind of honing in and having conversations amongst anarchists, amongst MLs, amongst whoever else, um, on what should be strategy or steps we take forward, um, everybody just kind of pushed for this big tent strategy of like anybody who's absolutely willing at all to like listen to us on anything, it doesn't matter what else your ideals or beliefs are mm-hmm. let's just all work together on
0: this right
1: um which i find to be painfully dangerous it's literally how every leftist movement throughout american history has died um because what ends up happening is when you invite in all of these random people who aren't necessarily leftists you end up with a lot of bad faith actors and you end up with a lot of Folks who don't agree with you ideologically, and so instead of you getting to push them left, you know, like we're seeing now, they end up pushing a lot of people right, which is a huge problem. Um, we can see right now, like the whole Joe Biden situation. Right? It's like, Go vote Joe Biden, we'll still push him left. You know, not only has nobody pushing Joe Biden left, uh, he's basically turned AOC into mini Nancy Pelosi and Bernie Sanders has completely abandoned every single one of his values. That he had spent 40 years fighting. For. So it's like all, all we've seen is just this hard shift downward slope into the right. Um, and it's because, I, I mean, part of that is because those people were never leftists in the first place. Um, and part of it is, you know, because the left's big tent strategy is an abject failure. So part of that is, is I think there's an issue of like values that need to be discussed. Um, having a conversation about, like, what does it mean to be a leftist, which is a thing that we don't often want to do, because, like, when you start to try and make definitions for things, when you start trying and hone in on that stuff, people get really uncomfortable. Uh, sometimes language gets a little sloppy, and you leave out somebody, or you forget to say something, and so somebody gets upset. And so instead of being able to have a conversation about that, like adults, we all just, like, scream, and, uh, scream on the Internet and block each other and then, you know, start Twitter drama, right? So... Um, in this particular angle uh, article, you know, I, I talk a little bit about how this isn't an all-inclusive list, but I think it's a good start to help you weed um, some folks out, right? And uh, the very, at the absolute very bare minimum, right, I think it's something we can all agree on, whether you're a communist, whether you're an anarchist, whether you're, you know, some kind of socialist of um, whatever variety or order, that in order to be a leftist, you, at the very least, need to be anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, anti-racist, right? Uh, and then, you know, I put down, like, anti-bigotry, anti-fascist. Um, I think you can kind of wrap a bunch of stuff into a, what you would call, like, anti-douchebag, right? Because there's, like, there's so many things now that the language we we would have used, say, during the Rainbow Coalition, where this list would have, I think, been, like, all-encompassing, right? Like, because they didn't really talk a lot about Trans issues, Like they, they were obviously like pro-trans rights as well back then, but it just like it didn't have a large scale coverage. Right? So it's like, you know, obviously we're going to be anti-terfs, anti-homophobes, anti-xenophobes, anti-jingoism, you know, like all those things. It's, but like those just kind of wrap into your kind of typical douche behaviors, right? Um, But I think it more uh, is equally important to that, right, is you can't just be against stuff because, and this is a thing we'll talk probably a little bit more about in just a moment, is um, if you're only anti-stuff, then your movement necessarily becomes reactionary, which is a thing that we're seeing a lot right now um, in like the the kind of those middle ground socialist groups. Like, the the new kind of anti-AOC crowd, right? They just become, like, extremely reactionary in that, like, they don't have anything they're necessarily fighting for. They're just anti-liberal, right? Or they're just anti-democratic party. And it's like, cool, but so what, right? Like, who who gives a shit, you know? It's like, politicians are corrupt. Yeah, and? Like, what's next? Um, We're going to yell about how corrupt politicians are some more? Okay, well... That doesn't help us. That doesn't get people healthcare. That doesn't provide, like, build mutual aid networks. That doesn't, like, that doesn't do anything for the movement, right? So. Right.
0: So I guess what you're saying is that, when to start off with the leftist movement, it's important to, yes, you have to be against, like, uh, imperialism, against capitalism itself, because those are antithetical to really the left overall. But it is important when you want to become when you want to bring people to the left, that they're actually for something that they could bring to the table for the movement itself. And so in your in your article, you highlighted too that you know we need people who are pro-freedom, pro-equality, pro-solidarity, pro-worker, pro-democracy, not in the American sense, but in the sense that everyone gets a say. So that means you must be for worker co-ops as well. That's another example of how uh, workers in the United States can have a say in their workforce, because if you're going to spend eight hours a day for your life at one place, you should have more freedom and a better say about how you go about it. So does that kind of, for our audience, does that kind of clear up what you're saying overall so far?
1: Absolutely, right? And that, that kind of that not American sense but like everyone could say, like I am a huge, as an anarchist, I am an absolute proponent of what we call direct democracy, right? It's horizontal organization of people, right? We're not doing top-down organization like you know, we might say, like, jokingly, like, no gods, no masters, right? But it's, I know, I, I do think, like, you know, I don't want to say that it's, like, it is, like, just kind of, like, a catch line gag. But, you know, there's, there is a lot more to that in that, like, no, like, I don't need someone, I don't need bosses, like, of any sort. I don't need a boss in my home. I don't need a boss at work. Um, I don't need a boss in my town or my community or my neighborhood. Like, we can all... As human beings, who I think are inherently good, come together, have conversations, and democratically uh, move forward uh, on on things that matter to us, right? And and if you and if you work and you operate under the assumption that people are going to be inherently good and they're, they're not going to just like be evil shitbags, uh, it's a lot easier to you know move in that direction where, you know, democracy isn't scary. You know, um, the ancient Greeks, they often talk about, like Plato talks about how democracy is the worst form of government because it's just mob rule. And, you know, back to, I people had a very, throughout history, people have generally made, depending on what sect you come from, there's an assumption that people are inherently bad and they're self-serving and they're selfish and they're greedy and they're arrogant and stupid. And so, like, when you... If you institute direct democracy, right, then you know everybody's just going to vote to ruin everything, which I don't. I don't necessarily think is the case. I think you're going to find most people don't don't have that problem. Um, so yeah, that's it's going to be a big push for us is to be not just anti-stuff, but pro-stuff. Like we got to be pro, like each other. You know that's what that solidarity's for. So you can't just like stick BLM in your ha- like hashtag BLM in your Twitter bio and then move. Like, go out and call the cops on that suspicious-looking black guy that walks up by your neighborhood who happens to be your neighbor you refuse to talk to. Like, that's not solidarity. Like, you have gotta, you gotta like be in favor of like having conversations with people. Yeah, like you were saying, worker co-ops. You know, putting power back in the hands of the people who are actually doing all the work. Um, those are absolutely necessary steps.
0: Now this meme that I <laughs> that I show, I want to show to the audience and for our online for our, our radio listeners, I'll read to you what it says. So this is a famous meme that circulates around our leftist circles. There is a lady that says uh, we should improve society somewhat, and then there's this kid who's being very facetious, and he says, "Yeah, you participate in society. Curious, I'm very intelligent." Uh, this is a meme that circulates <laughs> a lot around really left Twitter and online, et cetera. But I want to ask you, EQ. Why did you put this in your article, and what did you and what, what did you mean by it? Like, what was the mindset behind it when you put it in your article? Sure.
1: So this is like, um, so two things. One, like I think part of part of the, the real good joke about the meme um, that I always enjoy is that the guy is in a well, actually. So there's that kind of you know wordplay that's also kind of drawn into that. But the thing is, is what you see here is um, when we start talking about people in the lab. Right. Um, you know, there's other things you can say that we should be for or against or whatever, but I, you know, I think that particularly separates the weak from the chaff. Um, I think it prevents people infiltrating the movement. And so what you want to do is when you're having conversations with people who claim to speak for the left, and I, and I put that little term right there, you know, it's like, because it's like when we talk about the discourse, you know, on Twitter, in this kind of uh, pejorative way, um, you want to kind of compare the things that they're arguing against that list right are they in favor of some wars like that you're not being very anti-imperialist if you're just like well maybe we should bomb syria you know um are you suggesting that like we can have capitalist reforms you know like elizabeth Warren, right that's not leftism right you capitalism is antithetical to what we're doing right um so if people are constantly arguing with you that capitalism is really good actually then it's like you're not you know and and so this is that kind of that meme that we share a lot on the, on the far left because it's that idea of like, you know, you make some sort of levy some complaint against capitalism or against society in general or the United States. And then there's always just like somebody's like, and yet here you are posting this from your iPhone, you know. And so like that kind of joke of like communism win no iPhone is it's a thing that, you know. Like, I think we're being serious here is like, no, like somebody having an iPhone or a nice TV or an Xbox or pe- like poor people owning things is not a sign of hypocrisy in a system that is necessarily uh, subjugating of them, right? So it's like, so when you have those people who say, uh, oh, well, I mean, yeah, you're against the system, but it's like, yet here you are shopping on amazon.com or here you are not like going out and you know personally taking your 12 gauge shotgun and shooting at cops in the street like so what are you actually doing to solve this crisis right Th- those people are what we would consider a bad faith actor right they're not they're not on our team they're not actually leftists they're just those that's a little right those those people are sowing division um because they're not willing to just have nuanced adult conversations about what this movement has to look like moving forward.
0: I guess it's a good segue to really later in the article, when you really get into depth about, you know, there's this discourse on the left right now where it's like, yeah, we want to expand the bench to become really a more powerful force in the United States. So there are some people that are saying, hey, you know, there are some conservatives we can reach after. There may be some liberals we can reach after. And you have also a lot of uh, these other far right figures as well that, that people want to convert because they may have seen like the errors of their ways or whatever and I guess you kind of outline really the requirements to do so or some factions that you feel you can't necessarily work with and yeah. so I do want you to explain um to our audience uh what what you believe some factions are willing to right that you're willing that we could be willing to work for. And some we really should let alone to their own vices. So what's your commentary on that so far?
1: Uh, yeah, so I think for me, uh, if I'm going to be entirely honest, I think this shifts a little bit every day. Uh, some days, you know, I'll say log in online or I'll be out like, having a conversation with somebody from like a local DSA chapter. And I'll think, maybe Gimsocks, maybe they're not too bad. Maybe we can work with those guys. And then, like, you know, the next day I'll log on and there'll be, like, 12 different DSA chapters who are all under fire because, like, their co-chairs were covering up, like, sexual assault and, like, DSA Nationals trying to cover for it. It's just, like, this whole entire, like, shit show. Um, and it's like, uh, well, you know, hmm, I wonder. Maybe not, you know? But, I, so I think, I think the big thing is, is I think people who are... Willing to like, and I mean, absolutely willing to just shift left on a lot of stuff. Like, who are willing to actually put in revolutionary work? I think you can. Work. But I think, for for the most part, liberals, conservatives, Nazis, uh even reformed Nazis. Like, I don't get, I don't give a shit about reformed Nazis. Like, I don't believe there's a such thing as reformed Nazis. Um, I think there are people who uh, were open Nazis, and then there are people who. Later on, got their ass beat and uh, didn't want to get their ass beat a second time. And so they pretended that they're not a Nazi anymore. But and so it's like, no, I don't I don't think he worked with those groups. The thing is, is I, I do believe that, like, the amount of people that we have who are, say, um, politically uneducated or uh, maybe politically uh, apolitical or apathetic uh, to, like, the systems or whatever, uh, who are just like, oh, I just want to stay in my house and uh, do my own thing. I don't give a shit about the government right like yeah sure that person you probably work with even if they're like they just vote republican every year because that person doesn't like actually give a shit about any of that that person you can have conversations with and you can say things like oh well you know it's like you know do, how do you feel about this how do you feel about that how do you feel about this and then you know you're going to find out that actually they're going to align with leftist views like 99 out of 100 times and the only reason that they're not a card-carrying member of the communist party is because they Grew up watching Fox News, and so if you're in person, I think you can have some conversations about those people, but I don't think that you necessarily need to invest a bunch of time and energy into them. Um, I jokingly write kind of like in the in the articles like, um, should like what's the 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 short answer of like should we work with any of these people is no, and the long answer of should we work with any of these people is no, like because yeah, there's just uh, I mean, we've seen it time and time again. Like, if you're a leftist and you're online and you're arguing under, say, a Ryan Knight post or some other thing with some liberal who's just, you know, God, Joe Biden's saving America. He's, he's saving our souls or whatever. Like, those people aren't open to facts. They're not open to reason. Um, it's a team sport for them. Um, and just the same way that you're not going to convince somebody born in New York to stop rooting for the Mets or the Yankees, you know, whichever side of New York they're, they're on, right? Like... You're, you're not going to convince those people to become Red Sox fans, so don't go and try and convince liberals who literally don't want to listen to you um, have conversations about like proper leftism. There's enough other people out there that you can bring into the fold who aren't like locked into one of those garbage ideologies that you don't need to be wasting your time trying to build a big tent movement. Um, I think if we have a small tent system, right, which is what I call that small tent, where it's like are allowed in the so ones who like ideologically agree with us then you know we can quibble about little smaller details right and i make the example like dim socks versus soft dims, right like if they if they wanted to build a small tent kind of social democrat democrat socialist something um they're similar enough on a lot of points that they if they would all just kind of like mesh together they could probably get a lot done right for us like basically communists uh anarchists like especially if you're an anarcho-communalist or a syndicalist or you know something something along those lines i think we're close enough on a lot of things that yeah like we can like there's your small tent you agree on a bunch of the baseline stuff um and now we don't have to sit here and quibble about whether or not some capitalism is good or some imperialism is okay or you know well, like, when is it all right to do a racism? You know, it's like that we should never be having to have those conversations. And if your brand of leftism is just like, well, you know, white guys who say the N-word sometimes, you know, like, no, man, you're not part of the group. Get out. Like, because that's the thing is, is, you're going to get sea lioned every single time you let these types of people in to your organization. Right. And for those who don't know, the listeners like sea lining, it's another meme. Uh, there there was a comic cartoon about these two kind of old Victorian people sitting around talking and The lady's just like, I don't don't care much for sea lions. And then this sea lion pops up and it's just like, well, hold on now. I've, I've never said anything bad about you. Debate me, right? Like engage me in the marketplace of ideas about sea lions. And it's just like, no matter where she is in her life, whether she's at home or something else, it's like this thing's just like following around badgering her about her opinions, you know? And it's, and what it does is it, it kills productive conversation, right? If you're sitting in some sort of like local meetup and you're trying to have a conversation about mutual aid and it's just like, hey, you know, we need to be prepared to go out and, uh, you know, like, hey, let's talk about how we, you know, steal groceries from, from Walmart so that we can feed the poor or whatever. And then one some liberals in there, it's like, all oh, stealing is wrong. Like, let's work with the police. You know, like that person's just constantly shutting down what would have been productive leftist conversation. Um, and so there's no value to having them. There. Like, what what good are they? Like, you're not doing anything. They're just screwing up your meeting. They're just wasting everybody's time. And now you're stuck just kind of having more meetings that you didn't need to have because you you didn't get anything done the last time. You know. So that's. Um, I I post the photo. It's uh, Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, which is like a huge thing in that too, right? Like, should a tolerant society tolerate intolerance? You know, it's like if. If you allow organizations or groups, things like Nazis, Klan, and whatever, groups you are openly intolerant into your organization, people who are consistently tolerant and just let stuff slide will eventually get wiped out or pushed aside, and those intolerant ones will end up taking over. So, you know, even though it seems paradoxical, like, if you want to be a more tolerant society, you've got to boot intolerant people. Like it's it's why I argue you, you have to do pl- platform Nazis. You cannot have them on your shows, you cannot talk to fascists. Um, it's a big it's a big gripe that I have, right? If you're a leftist and you're inviting Proud Boys or Boogaloos or Groypers or 3%ers or Oath Keepers or Klansmen or like some other dumbass like MAGA chuds onto your show, right? You fucked up. You know, you you've done damage to the movement. Because you you have allowed bad faith actors to infiltrate spaces that they shouldn't have any access to.
0: And just to add on to what you said, what, what you said is a lot of uh, interesting stuff. You know, some some people may disagree. Some people may agree. Um, what you said, so basically what you're saying is like leftists in general, how they in, how they interact with Nazis or fascists. The best way is with your fists, basically. <laughs> That's kind of a, a running joke. And the leftists.
1: There's, yeah, there's the saying that's like, uh, punching a Nazi makes you a centrist, and killing a Nazi <laughs> makes you a comrade, right? And so yeah. I'm, a, I'm a firm believer, right? It's, you just there's, there's no conversations to be had. Um, I posted this on somebody else's thing the other day. There was like a, a Twitter thread about it where they were talking about, like, well what if we talk about this? No, look, in, in places like Germany that have to deal with the fallout of Nazism, right? Like, this is a country that still struggles every day with like trying to figure out how they move forward from such an ugly past um there's a saying that they they throw around out there that's like if you see uh, a couple of people sitting at it like four people sitting at a table listening to a nazi you have five nazis at the table right reasonable people don't want to listen to that kind of dumbass bullshit if they don't have the nazi position is not like interesting or like it's worth like having some sort of theoretical debate about no like that stuff impacts actual human lives and it's not theoretical and so some person's going to sit there and try and talk about you know well oh you know white people just naturally blah 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 or it's like black people naturally blah 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 and it's no that that person's garbage you know hit them with the chair you know take the teeth out of their mouth and then you know move on with your day right that's not those aren't conversations you should be engaging in or listening to, or allowing to continue, right? Um, when I when I talk to people about why you don't debate Nazis, because there's always this thing, I, I had a huge argument uh, with like Ryan Knight and a couple of his supporters about this, because a lot of people in some of those, like kind of those, I want to call them like middle liberal-ish, I don't they call themselves leftists, but I, again, I think they're liberals. Um because they'll argue with things like, well, you know, you can you can debate a Nazi out of their platform. And I don't believe that you can. I believe that you don't debate Nazis, you simply loan them your audience. Because a, do- a, a, a Nazi is not concerned about winning debates. Like, you have to understand your enemy's tactics here. They don't give a shit if you embarrass them and make them sound stupid. That's not what they're trying to do. What they're looking for is if you've got 500 people in the audience, they're looking for that one person who... Who, like, if you were to do, like, some sort of polling afterwards, and they say, oh, did did Nazi McDip shit here make any good points? And you're looking for that one person who's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I thought this point about blah, 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 like, crime statistics was, like, interesting, right? That person banned. Now, Now that person's basically in the pipeline to shift hard alt-right. And that's all they're doing, right? And, then like, for them, they understand that it's this long game, and all they care about is just getting the message out into the world and you know, seeing where it takes them, right? They, you, you're you not debating them out of that. It's why, like, when we de-platformed Milo Yiannopoulos off of, like, everything, like, the number of Nazis went down drastically, right? When people like Steven Crowder get kicked off of, like, YouTube for a little bit, the number of Nazis in the world shrinks because they're not just being poisoned with stupid ideas
0: and, and these types of things. So it's like, you can't, you just can't platform these people. You gotta just... And just into- to and just to push back a little bit on that, I mean, I'm not advocating for censorship, and in, in, in the sense that uh, you have someone who says some crazy, you know, far right stuff like that to deplatform them. That's kind of what I'm. That's kind of what I disagree with you at. But I, I think what you're advocating for is people are listening right now. They hear a lot of the negative things that you're yeah, that you're saying, which mm-hmm. I I agree with. Like this, these aren't the people who have this set of beliefs aren't allowed in the left. What you're getting at is that the left should have a litmus test, meaning Mm -hmm. that if you want to be a part of the left, you have to be for this set of ideology with this set of policies that we all advocate for. And if you're for one of these or a few more of these, this is is the benefits you can add to the movement and make it better. And so just to transition to really the bad faith actors part in your article that Mm -hmm. you mentioned, you did kind of line out, too, how you should identify them. Right. So the first one, you have like the big, big tent arguer. The second one is like pushing electoralism as the only option. The third one is like constant demands of putting things off to later, like waiting later instead of now. Can you explain really those uh identifiers and why you put them in your article? Sure.
1: Um, so, yeah. So I think these things kind of tie into a little bit of like what I was saying earlier. Right. Um, I do think. Yeah, this is one of those things I think you and I will just kind of disagree on. But I do think for it overwhelmingly works is that, like, similar to that, like, conversation about the paradox of tolerism, right? Deplatforming folks works, right? It just, it, it's, we see objective data that, like, you know, kicking Nazis off of platforms has, like, a, a better overall thing. And, like, and when you move left and you talk about these kind of utopian things that, like, Marx talks about, that or Emma Goldman on the anarchist side, when they talk about these civilizations that they're building post-revolution, right? There is like this like freedom of speech, right? People talk about anything they want to, but there are limits to that, right? And we even see it like here in kind of the United States, right? we have like freedom of speech, but like freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences, right? Freedom of speech doesn't mean you can just yell fire in a crowded theater. Like those things we've determined are not, they don't count, right? Um, and so like, there's the same thing, right? It's like, you don't, you don't have certain kinds of like, eugen- like eugenicist conversations, right? It's just like, Hey, well, what if we just get rid of all, you know, this kind of person and make the world, but no, like, we're not gonna entertain any of that. Uh, because like, again, like when you debate those things you add legitimacy to them, right? Like if I was on here and I was a garbage person and you and I were gonna have a debate about whether or not black people should live, right? you debating that with me is giving credence to the idea that it's a worthwhile thing to debate and it's not like it's to me it's like one of those weird things of like you know blm shouldn't be like uh, a movement that like white people just like throw a hashtag out on no this is like a default position right like if you use the phrase like black lives matter and the very next word out of your mouth isn't like obviously or duh then you shouldn't be saying it, right? Like it's like, it's just like anti-fascist is the default position. You shouldn't need to put that in your bio on Twitter that you're not fascist, right? Like that's normal. That's what we would call normal, you know? And so it's like, if
0: you're- Let me, let's, let's break this down a little bit because I sure. think it make it confusing for our audience and those for our radio audience. What you're saying is you're not saying leftists should proactively go after right-wingers and debate them, but debate issues on their playing field. What you're mm-hmm. saying is, and what I, this is my interpretation of what you're saying is, is that if you have a right winger who's saying stupid stuff, you can go after them in defense, right? But I'm not, but this is why I differ from you in this instance is that de-platforming them doesn't actually make them go away. It hides them. It makes them stronger in the dark, you know? So the argument that I believe is that deplatforming them only makes them more powerful, you know, it's almost like the uh, Game of Thrones reference. You know, when you cut off a man's tongue, you fear what he has to say. So, and even what we've seen with, you know, Donald Trump getting uh, removed from Twitter, all it did is kind of make it more popular. He's actually gotten smarter. He tweets less and he gives out less statements, but his people still love him. And he, and it's easier to, to what's well, easier for them to, to commune and share more of their right-wing crazy positions when it's not monitored and seen by others, you know? So I do believe that, you know, this is a big debate among the left yeah. and in general about I, censorship, but that's just I, my position I
1: think, I think in those cases, right, like you have a little bit of give and take on like like a public conversation, right like where if, like if somebody's out like and you're in a protest situation and you get right one's on the other side, like you're not going like you you see it all the time right in like actual direct action situations, right if the proud boys are out, i don't know, saying a bunch of just racist anti-semitic stuff in the middle of Portland. Black blocs not just like hold on guys let's hear them out and let them speak their piece right now they're just like they're over there punching them the out and and to some degree that's it's a deplatforming right it's it's because again it's like I was saying earlier the the goal of the Nazi is not to win people over with their stunning brilliance and oration skills and ideas it's it's to find that like one in a thousand person who's just curious enough or just centrist enough to be willing to listen that they can then kind of pull in. It's like, it's the same thing you see with like missionaries, right? Like in in a very kind of evangelical um, sense of like when they go to some place, like say the third world, like the developing world, what we call the third world in the United States, right? So when they're going to some place overseas and they're like, hey, you know, like, you know, I know you're starving. I've got some food. If you let me talk to you about Jesus, I'm going to let you eat. And then it's just, like, what you're doing is you're, you're destroying their culture in the name of, like, getting some food into their bellies. And Nazism functions in a very similar way, right? It's not trying to get everybody. It's just trying to get enough. And I think if you if you can yank them off the platforms and you force them to just kind of talk in their own echo chambers, right? You take them off major platforms, right? Like, I'm not saying you, you do platform Like, in a perfect world, yeah, you do platform across everything. But we did see actual direct data that like the less that like groups like the KKK were allowed to have access to like newspaper articles or write in journals or do all these other things. Their membership dropped from like tens of thousands down to like, I think it was like 1700 at one of its lowest points because they'd basically been yanked off of all the news channels, off of cable television, out of the newspapers. And so they were kind of pushed into obscurity. Now granted some of them, like they, they became, I think, what you could say a little bit more like laser focused on their goals. But we've seen, I think, direct data that suggests once you, once you take that strategy of finding people and trying to sneak your fascism into them, uh, once you take that strategy away, you really weaken the movement for them. And so the easiest way to prevent a hard right upswing is to prevent the number of hard right people there are. And you do that by preventing them from like getting tricked by hard right talking points. Like it's because that's the tough part about it, right? Is is like we always assume it's like, oh well, if you're racist, it's because you're just so fucking stupid. But most of these people aren't stupid. They have Ivy League educations, right? Like they're they go to Harvard and Yale and you know Princeton and all these other, like whatever. And these people, like I had a conversation with a guy. He grew up in uh, Alabama as well, and they have this like old school, like antebellum uh, private high school. Uh, It's like deep in the mountains over on the east part of the state borders, Georgia. And in this little high school, they basically teach you how to pretty much be like super racist and like continue white supremacy and do a lot of these things. And one of the things that they teach you that he said, because he, he went to this high school, is that they also teach you how to play dumb when you get caught. They, te- they teach you how to do the old, dumb Southerner. Oh, well, shut. <laughs> I just, I reckon I didn't know. Der, der. And they just.
0: And by the he, way, for our audience, he's, he's from the South. So he can, he yeah, can do that. South. So yeah, no absolutely. hate mail, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, You can send me
1: hate mail. I'm not reading it. I don't <laughs> uh, like, um, you know, it's, but that's the thing is like, this was a huge like thing for him is that like, you know, he was talking about, he's like, yeah, they teach you how to play dumb. And so all of these like Southern politicians, come out of this private school, right? The, the Roy Moores, the Kay Ivey's, like, all of the, all of these absolute garbage people went to this place, and they learned how to just be absolute monsters, and then when they get busted, go, oh, well, shucks, I'm just an old, dumb hillbilly, I don't know nothing, and then everybody just goes, ah, oh, well, they're stupid, they're not evil. No, they're, they're evil. And it's, and it's a direct thing that you have to, I think, subvert in some way, and I think we can get Probably into that conversation more down the road because I do think that, like this can easily be like a four-hour spiel where we debate the value of just like putting every Nazi against the wall or not, um, which I'm in favor of. So just in case everybody wants to know, like that's put them all against the wall, figure it out later, you know. Um, but yeah, so to get back onto the the bad faith actors thing, like um, I think it's 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 pretty clear. One of the things is, is like, as we build a movement, obviously the goal, if you're an ML or an anarchist or something on that kind of, what we call that far left, your goal is revolution, right? If you're a Fred Hampton leftist, your goal is revolution. It It is abolishing the state. It's abolishing police. It's abolishing capitalism. It's getting people to a place of equity, of like it's eliminating racism to the best of our abilities like i i unfortunately i believe we will never see all of racism go away but i think we can get damn close like if we can educate enough people because that's the big thing too is with a lot of these different things like when you have these debates about like how do we platform or do platform or whatever a lot of these assumptions they they get put in kind of built into the the foundation is that oh most people are reasonable and they know things and like when they hear something that's stupid they'll know that it's stupid but they don't like propaganda as as Nick here with the, uh uh on the Fred Hampton left like says all the time we're the most propagandized country in the world and people will just believe some dumb stuff like some just really absurd nonsense um, because they've just been fed it every single day of their life. For the 50 years that they've been on this earth and they don't know better and so uh, you can't necessarily rely on that person's rationality to carry your leftist ideals um, forward but um uh, sorry for the aside there but uh for for the Faith actor stuff like i think one of the the biggest things i saw when we were building this massive movement especially on things online um there was that push there the, the no comrades under 1k thing um which i think was absolutely detrimental to the left because what it did is there's just like no checks and balances like it was just anybody could just start following anybody so you saw a lot of
0: right-wingers a lot of centrists a lot of liberals jump in on to this to like build followings i, th- I think and- like every every day like Okay, so what, for an audience that doesn't know, there was this thing on left Twitter called No Comrades Under 1K, then it was 2K, I don't know how many different Ks it was, but the mentality was is that after Bernie dropped out, hey, all, a lot of us online leftists who are disconnected, let's all use this Twitter's platform in space to meet each other, talk about politics, political education, organizing, yada, yada, yada. But the problem is, is when you do it on such a big platform like that, there's always ops, there's always different types of people trying to co-opt so, the movement or so to go the op- against the movement. It's like, like millions of ops.
1: And that was, it's huge. And, right, and so so many of them, right? You see it all the time. Like, let's start arguing or let's start a conversation. And you can try this on, on your own platform. You can find out how many bad faith actors you have on your own follower list. Start a thread about why you and all of your friends should put together an, a local anarchist group and then take over city hall. And then just watch how many bad faith actors you have in your comments talking about like, well, what about the, you know, that's that's harmful to the black community. And it's just like, uh, like, you know, in RJ's case, it's like, it's oh, amazing I, how they start the caring black black about it when it happens. You know? you know, it's like, um, yeah, you, you find these people whose sole kind of position is always to just like push things off to later. There's always like, oh, well, that would just cause all this harm to like all these groups. Those people are being harmed right now. Right, abolishing the police does not cause additional harm to the to black people. Right, like they're they're being harmed every day right now. Right, if anything, not having cops anymore is going to drastically re- reduce the number of people who get shot by the cops on a day-to-day basis. Um, I think I just recently saw something earlier. It was like the average is like like one a day or like three a day or something like that, where cops are like shooting people. Why? Yep, yeah, that's three people a day who could just not be getting shot now because we abolished the cops. So if you're arguing that like, oh, now is not the right time, you know, we got to do this nice and slow. We got to do incrementalism, which is, I think, really that big kind of like putting an off till later is just like a loop lumps in with that incrementalism. No, we don't need Medicare for all. What we need is to slowly just expand Obamacare. Like one percent every year for the next like hundred years until maybe you know it's like no man by then like if sixty eight thousand people die every year from this like you am talking like millions of people dead who didn't have to be because you're a bad faith actor right like because and just to explain what you're
0: just exp- just to explain what you're saying by this is that right wingism expands really uh, ex- extensively you know. It's almost like a J curve. Like right wingism is fast, it's easy to uh, go, and it grabs power and really destroys working class people uh, fast. Correct. But when you advocate for incrementalism by changing it at the pace that's really a fraction as fast as the right wing does, it really doesn't help you out as much. You know, so I think that's probably what you're saying, just for our audience yeah. that gets a little confused.
1: Yeah, sorry. So, yeah, that's that's really what it is, right? Like it, the, the thing is, is, you know, our society as a whole is overwhelmingly conservative right even though most people don't want to believe that like the idea like of maintaining tradition for the sake of tradition is baked into americanism and not changing things is baked into americanism right so if you're going to combat that that's not a thing that you can do incrementally right that's going to have to require large-scale rapid bold change and it's going to be painful right just like uh, when we started uh, desegregating schools, right, they're not just like, you know, like, ah, oh, let's allow one black kid every five years to now go to our-. like, no, we'd, we'd, we wouldn't have anything there. Like, it was just like, here it is, like, let's just fight it out in the streets and get it done. Like, rip the band-aid, call it a day. And it's, you know, that's a thing. Um, so sometimes, yeah, like you just, like, arguing for incrementalism or arguing for just waiting for later well, just constantly arguing is like, oh well, just vote then, just vote, just vote. It's just like George Floyd is like, we're watching this live video of this guy being murdered, and everybody like under the comments is like, vote, 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 as though this isn't a democratic city with a democratic mayor and a democratic governor. And a, who are you voting for? Vote for who? Like, are you gonna you gonna vote for Republican now? Like, is that like, are you changing, changing team? Like, like who is How is voting helping? Right, and if the solution, no matter what the problem is, is always to vote, it's just like for what? Vote for what? We just like we're watching AOC become basically like, you know, Pat Buchanan in real time, and it's like, how is that helping? Anybody?
0: What do you mean by Pat Buchanan? Because that's so new. I, I haven't heard of that.
1: Okay, so Pat Buchanan,
0: um, you're
1: you're gonna be a little young. This is this is old people talk. So if you're in the audience and you're old, you don't know who Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan was a a guy who ran for president back in the 90s he was a really heavy-handed like right-wing pundit guy uh when his all of his political aspirations failed um super kind of racist uh but he'd had like he's got an interesting book if you want to get a general good idea of why right-wing people think the way that they do he has a really good book called where the where the right went wrong um that's like if if you're in, into the idea of like understanding the enemy, right? Like and knowing kind of like where their mindsets are coming from, um, that's that's gonna give you a really good look at why right wingers behave the way that they do. Um, but he is he's really kind of the architect of what would be George Bush republicanism or George W. Bush Republicanism. Um he's really the architect of that. And so I obviously I'm being a little bit hyperbolic when I say like AOC is becoming a Pat Buchanan right like obviously she's not becoming some sort of like racist old white man who's arguing in favor of well well she is she is arguing in favor of war isn't she She's she does it as support overthrowing South American you know elected governments so I mean who knows maybe maybe I'm not being as hyperbolic as I thought but that's the thing is this, so we're watching in real time um you know, there's like that that tweet that I, I share is like a meme, a bunch on Twitter, but well, I guess I did on my old account before I get escorted. Um, where it was like Omar um, gaslighting her own daughter. Oh, you know, her daughter's just like, yeah, push Biden left. And then Omar's just like, no, screw you, like five... Five bold progressives can band together and we can just like force Congress to do anything
0: we want. Okay, just for contextual purposes for our radio audience. So for anyone that doesn't necessarily know what he's talking about. So there is a thing going on for during force to vote for all this energy. Uh, what he's talking about is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. She represents Minnesota's 5th con- congressional district. Um, she put on Twitter that uh, uh, we all we need is like five or so progressives to really stand up and be strong for these policies. And her daughter ratioed her on Twitter, saying, "Yeah, okay, we could push Biden left. Yeah, okay." So that's what uh, he's yeah. basically referring to. So just yeah. for contextual purposes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh,
1: that's yeah. I always kind of forget sometimes when you get folks on the radio, they're not. And then it's also probably worth like having you do that too, because I'm what we would call terminally online, and I know a lot of us are. You know, it's uh, so it's it's tough when it's just like you know somebody asked about a meme. You know, it's like my wife spends very little time on the internet, so. If I like, if I'm laughing at some meme, she's like, "I like, what is that?" And I was just like, "Look, I don't have six years of meme theory to explain back to you, for this can make any sense." You know mm-hmm. what it's just don't worry about it. <laughs> like, you know, it's like there's just no way I can explain all this in a reasonable amount of time. But yeah, so that was, but that's a big thing, right? Is we saw with the the squad, right? I don't know that, like I saw somebody tweeted earlier. It's like stop calling the squad, just call them Democrats, which I agree with. Um, but we saw the squad. We're seeing the squad in real time, openly abandoning. Everything they ran on, all of their quote-unquote progressive values, all of these other things, right, Um, over these last couple of weeks, and just absolutely bend the knee uh, to Joe Biden and and this administration and the name of the Democratic Party and Democratic unity and all these other things. And so when we have these conversations about, like, yeah, these, like, kind of bad faith actors, and it's just like, oh, we'll just go vote, it's like, well, who am I supposed to vote for? We we had this entire push from, like, 2016 onward to get heavy-handed progressives, like people who were going to go in and fight the system and buck the system, and they were young and fiery and, like, aggressive, and, the, you know, they had all these snappy tweets, and, you know, that was, they were supposed to get in and, yeah, like Illinois Mars said, have five or six or eight of them, or whatever, build a coalition and hold Congress hostage. It was like the whole point of, fo- force the vote was literally the entire reason, 100%, Non hyperbolic. It's the entire reason people voted for progressives. That's why they vote for them, was for the eventual force the vote. Whether it's on Medicare for all, Green New Deal, whatever the case was, the goal was we are literally electing you with the sole intention of you going into Congress, holding up the show, screwing everything up, unless they give us these like progressive policy demands. And they bailed and they bailed hard and they turned around, as you've seen with AFC, anyways, and she's just gaslighting everybody. Uh, as a bad faith actor, right? Um, who would say, no, that's like, we literally voted for you to to do the thing you're not doing. So, um, oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so I think this is a good transition point because what you're describing, there is electoralism. You know, the sense that um, a movement itself would put our uh, hands in, our, in the basket of electoralism and push these politicians to do something we want Instead of necessarily organizing ourselves and making our communities better, which will funnel up. So instead of uh, doing a what some leftists call, you know, cheating, where you purely depend on politicians alone to get leftist wins, you should really start the ground up. I've been reading a lot about it. I try to keep an open mind, especially on left Twitter and leftists in general, because that's the only way you can learn and grow. And in your article, you you had like this uh, five-letter plan. You call it SMART. So it's abbreviate, abbreviated for our audience that's on um, on radio. A uh, SMART says specific, measurable, actionable, realistic, timetable. And I think this is a pretty interesting step in terms of really not only what a leftist uh, movement overall, whether it's locally, statewide, federal, can do to really not only do stuff for their community but really create their own institutional power, which could be used to really fight back against a fascist state so can you explain to our radio audience and to our fhl listeners what this smart steps program means and why you felt it was important to put it in your article
1: uh yeah so one of one of the things too a little bit i guess kind of quick addendum to my background is i've got about 20 years of sales experience um that's what i just that's what i've always done for a living with sales and this is a super common acronym or Acronym uh, when you're having conversations inside of a commission based sales. Like, so if you're watching this and you've ever done commission based sales, like, you've probably heard this as well as a few other, like, goofy acronyms. But one of the things that I was thinking about one of these days, I was sitting in one of my work meetings and, like, just bashing my head on the wall. And then, like, I had this kind of realization that, like, this is actually probably useful outside of this as well. so yeah, SMART is, uh, it is an acronym. And like, as uh, RJ explained a few different, uh, the, the different words there. So just kind of a quick breakdown on that, right? So your goals can't be super vague, right? You can't just say, we need a revolution, right? That's, that's useless. Okay, what kind of goal is that? Let's have a revolution. What kind of revolution? What does it look like? How do we do it? Uh, so you gotta you really like kind of be laser focused on, uh, are we doing an economic revolution, built up a general strike? Like that's, that's a specific goal, right? Are we doing a physical revolution? Like, are we all buying guns and ammo and storming the castle gates? Right? Like, what is what does that mean to have a revolution? So, uh, make sure that your goals and you can do this. Like, when when you're building mutual aid networks in your communities, if you're building any sort of like worker power, right? This is used when you're building organizing drives for unions, right? Your goal is oh, I want a union. That's super vague, right? What like what's a specific like you need like we need 90 people of the 150 uh, in our in our company who can vote yes on a union, right? Because that's how like union things work, right? It's a vote and it's a purely democratic, simple majority
0: wins. So it's we need one more than half of the people to be in favor of a union, right?
1: So that's a... and just to
0: just to break it down again. So what you're saying too is that there's two parts. You know, I'm gonna use the example for a union. It's not good enough just to say you want a union. There's two parts is what do you expect to gain from a union and what type of issues do I bring up to people to garner a support for a union? You know, and a difference between like uh, Bernie Sanders, when he said, oh, it sounds like you want a revolution, what he was insinuating was a political revolution. Mm -hmm. But when you are running a political revolution, you itself need goals, you need policies that you, uh, you need goals that you'll never waver from, you need great leadership, and you also need to make sure that the grassroots organizers who work for you, you give them the support they need to function. So I think this is what you're talking about when you say, oh, when you have a revolution, you need to not just say, oh, I want a revolution or I want a union. You have to outline the goals, the steps, and also the policy and the personnel you need in order to get that big goal you want accomplished. accomplish.
1: Absolutely. And I, th- and I think actually you, you make a good point there. And, and just as we move through this, um, so let's look at all of this under that lens of Bernie Sanders' political revolution, right? And you'll see, and I think real quickly, we're gonna find out why that political revolution failed, is because none of his goals are kind of met any of these criteria, right? So it's like he didn't have a specific goal. What's a political revolution? What does that even mean? Like, I don't know. Does that just mean like we all vote for Bernie Sanders and then like like he just like goes in like a dictator and solves all of our problems for us? Because is is, I don't think that's how, what he meant, but nobody really knows what he meant. He was really kind of leaning in on that. It's like Obama did with hope and change. He was really leaning in on you assigning some sort of meaning to that so that he didn't have to put that legwork in, right? So when you move to the next one, measurable, right? So it's like you need to be able to track progress. You need to see how you're going, right? Um, are you, like, talking to enough people about this? Like, are you getting enough people on board? Are you seeing growth in the organizations that support your causes? Um... So it's like, or Sanders political revolution, right? Was there any way to track whether or not we were revolting? No, I mean, there's, there, there was no way to measure that. That wasn't like, you know, sure, you could be like, well, we registered so many people for, you know, we, we get so many small time donations. Well, sure, but is that, is that what a revolution is? Is giving Bernie Sanders $30 million? <laughs> like, is that a political revolution? I don't know that it is. Uh, so your goals need to be actionable, right? You need to actually be able to do it you know, so it's like, again, it's like, so if we're going to end exploitation, that's not actionable. That's not a thing you can do, right? There's always going to be somebody out there who's trying to exploit somebody you can't. So what you can do is you can crush it where it is over time, try to get a zero, but you could set the goal of, we need to exit the capitalist system, kind of crash the, the hegemonic relationship that it has over us. Sure, that's more actionable, right? Like, that's the, kind of the point of revolution, right, is that you can do something there like you know i think of it like the was it um another kind of terminally online thing i'll go into is uh a couple of weeks back they had the uh wall street that reddit wall streeters who like just they a bunch of like random goobers on the website reddit all just invested in gamestop at once um and, like over a really, really short period of time to like drive up the price of the stock uh, to basically take a major hedge fund who had bet against GameStop and had bet all of their money against GameStop, and so a bunch of just like random folks went and invested a bunch of money, ballooned the price to. Okay, what you're market talking market. about
0: for our audience that doesn't know. So what he's what he's describing is this phenomenon shortly after Biden became president, called Wall Street bets. Now, Wall Street yeah. bets has started off with a few guys who were looking at, especially during COVID, how. You have these companies like AMC, which is a movie theater company, GameStop, which is a gaming company. So you saw these hedge fund managers, which are these different like billionaire, oligarch, Wall Street uh, racketeers who would uh, take a take a stock of that company that was short, about uh, 70%. And now what a short, what it entails, I may botch it up a little bit, but this is kind of what I believe it is, is a short in general, it means you're betting that a company would fail. And so you're taking that type of stock and you're borrowing it and you're betting against it, and that, and you'll get return on that money. And right. so, what these uh, Wall Street bets people did is say, okay, if you're betting against a company to fail to make money, and you're ta- and you're taking that risk and collecting all that debt, what we're going to do is we're going to bet on that company to prosper. So they're starting to buy into those stocks, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem that you had with Wall Street bets is is that they were making a ton of money. You had to get in there early because when the market is low and then you buy a lot of money when the money is low, once the money goes back up, you make out like fat cats. So the original people who got into it early, they made tons of money. Those who are in the middle or later in the game, they didn't make as much, right? So that's kind of what uh, the Wall Street Bet scenario, what he was saying, and I'll let uh, EQ continue. Sure,
1: yeah, so I mean, that, that particular scenario was a case of an actionable item, right? Like what they were doing is they said, hey, look, if we take our money and we invested in this company, we can cause this other company to go out of business. That's, that was our goal, right? Like, and so they're just like, we're going to spend a hundred dollars a piece to put this other company out of business, right? That's a super actionable thing. Uh, so that's really what that was. It's just kind of four more examples of those things. So R is for realistic. You know, your goal has got to be grounded in reality. Uh, let's overthrow the government. You know, that's not realistic, right? Um, you're not storming the castle gates and wiping out the power structures. Uh, like you know like that january 6th thing right we those people like they got in the door because the cops like literally moved the barricades for them and like ushered them in the door uh but even then like they're storming the the capitol building but that didn't do anything even even if they went in there and did damage burned the whole thing to the ground that doesn't get rid of the government like governments yeah like even if they like kidnapped nancy pelosi or whatever like that doesn't end congress like so it's like like your your goal like whatever their goals were they didn't have any but their goals weren't realistic bernie sanders like if you look at his movement right because we want to kind of check on check stuff off the list here right like Mm -hmm. have a political revolution right well because he, he wasn't specific or measurable or even super actionable right it's that makes it also not very realistic like you're not really grounded in anything because like your goal isn't actually like to abolish capitalism or abolish imperialism or abolish the state. It was to just hand people some healthcare and then pretend everything's, you know, utopian, which, you know, don't you're wrong, like I would love to have some healthcare, but like that's that doesn't make healthcare does not a utopia make, right? And so it's like we that's not the whole thing. And then it, it has to be timeable, right? You need to have an actual functioning time frame, right? If your goal is and and this is a huge problem we see on the left sometimes is like when they say things like we're going to have a revolution when when is the revolution or, ah sometime in the future well then you, your revolution is always going to fail if your revolution is always the day after t- tomorrow right every day it's the day after tomorrow you're never going to get it right so you need to have when you're planning things when you're doing these types of like growth projects in your communities you need to have a timeable functional goal right so A good example of this is uh when i helped to build the homeless construction coalition in in huntsville we had very specific kind of smart goals right we wanted to we were building pallet platforms uh for people out in homeless tent cities right in the camps um because basically what these were is they were small wooden structures uh that kind of circumvented the laws about homeless people being allowed to build permanent structures um and this elevated the tents off the ground which kept things like rats mice insects um water all these other things from getting into the tents ruining all their stuff getting, getting them sick those types of things um it was measurable right we can go out and physically like how many people are we helping every day um it was actionable it was a thing like you go out and you legitimately are building stuff um it was a realistic goal because we you know we, our goal was to basically service uh, most of the major camps. There were so many camps in Huntsville, we knew we couldn't get them all. Um, but the goal was to get the big ones. And so we and so that goal was realistic and we were to do it. And then our timetable was just like, hey, look, we're going to go out twice a month and we're going to build X number of platforms for X number of people. And so we accomplished all of our goals and we eventually got to where we were doing it so well. We were starting to have some financial issues like we couldn't get donations and things um one of the random churches in town had ended up i guess they finally paid off the building or something and so they had all this extra money that they were bringing from their tithes. and so they offered to just basically fund the whole project um and we ended up what we did is just turned it over to them uh we we taught some of them who would come out to help us like how to do the project and we just kind of like let them take rent since they had consistent income but so right there, you had a system of smart goals, right? Like voting for Bernie Sanders isn't a smart goal set, right? Um, revolting in general isn't a smart goal set. So it's making sure that you're having real, again, having adult conversations about like what needs to be done and like when and how we're gonna do it, right? It's all great and to just, oh yeah, we're gonna do, we're gonna just end racism. We're gonna end imperialism. We're gonna end capitalism when? How? Like, what? what is the plan? And then, you know, everybody's
0: like, oh, okay. Like, that's, yeah, that doesn't help us, right? So. Um, yeah, I agree. I, I, it, based on what I'm hearing so far, you're more like a who, what, when, where, and how, and why type of guy. Where it's yeah, like, yeah we, yeah, we all agree we want to end these type of uh, oppressive regimes like imperialism, capitalism, all this type of stuff. Sure. But we really have to do better on the left in terms of really uh, the people we, the personnel we use in our movement, um, how to better our policies. Because yes, there be there may be a policy we may all like, but there's always a better one that comes around. So we kind of have to always change our positions to make them better for the left, right? And in terms of leading a movement overall, like yeah, you want to have a revolution, but yeah, you have to have the different type of steps to do it. And so you're an. I want to transition to another one of your articles. Um, it's a. Dis, uh, you have another one called a the difference between uh, anarchism and white anarchism, you're an anarchist yourself. So I do want to ask you to give really a brief synopsis of the article so far and why you wrote it. And while you're doing that, I'll make sure I put the article on the screen for our audience. Sure.
1: So, um, yeah. So for those of you who, you know, uh, don't know, I it turns out I'm also pretty white. Um, Yeah. One of the big things is, is, and so the, the kind of goal of this is that, um, Related slightly similar to the, the, the last article, like, as well as everything else, because I'm an anarchist, like, anarchism is about, like, getting stuff done and, and living in a very specific way and, and doing things on the ground level. It is all bottom up. Um, there's no electoralism involved. Uh, you're not going to find anarchists going out and, like, canvassing for some politician because we don't want a government at all, right? Like, anarchists don't believe that we should have centralized governments, there shouldn't be a state, uh, there shouldn't be any of these things. And so like voting is not how you get things done. Um, you get things done by like walking out and organizing your community, right? You you go talk to your neighbors. Um, and I think that this will be more in the next article to we'll talk about, so I won't get deep into the weeds on that. But so my big thing that I've noticed over the years is, and it's especially a problem online, but you see it a lot too, like when you're in uh, university settings, academic settings, anarchism is overwhelmingly treated as this like kind of pie in the sky academic thing um you'll hear people all the time they'll quote folks like uh peter Kropotkin, emma Goldman, um alexander berkman and, and don't get wrong these are all like fascinating things maltesta like they're, they're great people to read and so if you've got some free time read it right like it's good it's not necessary like my, the point that I wanted to make with this article is that anarchism has been overwhelmingly the default state of how societies have organized back to the Clovis period which if you're not familiar the Clovis period is basically it's an archaeological time stamp uh, runs about 15,000 years ago um, and it's based off of a town called Clovis New Mexico it's actually where I was born and raised Um, and that's the, the idea is they, they had found some basically some, some artifacts, some some spear points and things like that that had suggested um, tool use and agricultural things and like a, like kind of this more established society than they had assumed. And then that when they carbon dated everything, they, they're just like, wow, like we thought modern people were only like 5,000 years old or whatever. This turns out that's like this 15th. So indigenous people have been living across the globe whether it's Africa whether it's North America South America Asia um, indigenous groups um, have overwhelmingly just lived largely in anarchist societies they're horizontally organized uh, there's not this weird like top-down representative democracy structure like that's you're not doing all that nonsense um, they're smaller they're usually like family or multi-family communes um, they're yeah they're running you know 50 to 500 people you know, and those people function in a commune and they do everything in a direct horizontal democracy. And, you know, like they all kind of just share the work, right, I, I, in the, the article, I, I put a lot of emphasis on uh, indigenous movements here in the Southwest, that's where I'm living, It's, uh, I have a little bit more access to those things um, to kind of go through and, and talk about. Um, and so when you look at groups, Apaches, Mescaleros, like, um, any one of the various indigenous uh, tribal groupings um, that comes from what we call the Canavan language family. Uh, They're all basically populated here in the New Mexico area. Um, I strongly recommend people go and do some research on things like Chaco Canyon, um, and then some of those things like the, uh, some of the ruins here in New Mexico. And what you're gonna find is that you have basically a ton of these like anarchist communities that have existed for thousands of years right and they've just been doing productive anarchism so when you get that argument with people and they just go like oh our anarchists have never been successful blah, 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 blah. no no actually anarchism is the default right like you can argue about whether or not we've had successful communism I mean clearly we've never had successful capitalism this is just a nightmare scenario this is this is clearly not a success right but anarchism has almost always been the default right? It's just, it's the easiest way to organize people. It's about free association. Um, You're not forcing people to, like, there's no borders, because that was a big thing, too. It's like, you know, people don't have borders, you know? Like, this is a new and goofy concept that comes with capitalism. Anarchism is very kind of, like, anti-borders, right? You just, like, you wander the world, you you go where you want to go, you hang out with people you want to hang out with, you're free to do the things that you want to do. It is really kind of encompassed in the idea of, like, you know you're free to swing your fists wherever you want, but your freedom to swing your fists ends where my face begins, um, and so it's that like kind of yeah. It's that general idea of like yeah we don't need we don't need people to tell us that like that's pretty intuitive right. Um, so yeah, this predominantly the article is pushing back on the idea that um, anarchism is only what I call these like 19th century Russian crust punks uh, idea of anarchism is, right? Like we need to, if we're going to be successful in building true revolutionary movements, we need to be looking at like indigenous black anarchist movements across Africa. We need to be looking at indigenous uh, North American or South American movements. We need to be following in the footsteps of the Zapatistas of, like all of these other different organizations like all the different tribal communities across uh, papua new guinea who basically live and function perfectly fine uh without having like these overbearing government structures right
0: and just for our audience um and on the radio what uh my friend eq that's that's his nickname y'all know his real name and also we have some people who wanted to know his uh, twitter name Uh, It's EQ, Earthquake Photos. That's his uh, Twitter name. And also his uh, article and his substack is uh, earthquake.substack.com. You can check that out. And I also put the links in YouTube. And so for our radio audience and really for our FHL audience, what he was describing is the history of anarchism. You know, I feel like we have a lot of uh, online Twitter discourse in general saying, oh, I'm an anarchist. Let's overthrow, really, let's overthrow the government or, you know, burn it all down. That that type of... uh, anarchism that's being depl- displayed really on left Twitter in general. And so uh, I do kind of want to ask you to transition further into your article about a uh, so what and what does it all mean, right? And I think you, in your article, you mentioned how you felt it was very confusing in terms of like, you know, I want to teach, you want to teach people about theory or teach people, people about a certain side of leftism. But for those people that say, oh, well, uh, read theory, you know, <laughs> that's not really as the most helpful way to really uh educate your other comrades really in the sense of political education so can you um really explain sure what you meant by this in your article
1: this this is where i get basically correct so like if you guys want my email address like i'll i'll have uh rj posted so you can send me all the hate mail that you want because i'm going to say the one thing that like every leftist absolutely doesn't want to hear and that is that theory is not important um the You're going to get canceled. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get canceled. Go ahead. That's fine. Uh, I already, my, my account with all the followers got s So this, this one doesn't have anybody that could so th- Look, theory is the thing that you do after the revolution when you've got time to sit around in your like, nice little garden plot and, and talk about these things, right? Theory is not the thing that drives the revolution, right? Action is what drives it. Because what happens is, like, theory changes all the time. Right. And as we become more kind of academically involved, academically aware,
0: as we all become kind of more academic. And even as society it, changes, too, as, you know, things so.
1: changes, those theories change. And so if theory is always changing, or theory is always evolving, or we're always stuck debating theory, so here again, right, it's just like, let's do it later, because first we've got to talk about the theories, right? You're never going to get anything accomplished. You run into that problem of like, well, when are we going to get this done? Well whenever we're done talking about theory, you can talk about theory literally until the heat death of the universe and still not like have any sort of functional solutions because like theory isn't practice right Fred hampton this is this is my favorite Fred Hampton quote, right he's hey, theory's cool and all, but theory without action ain't shit right and so that's that's the mentality that we need to be adopting on the left is not this like Screaming "read theory" at some illiterate, you know, miner over in in Tennessee because like they've just been working in the coal mine since they were seven, like yelling "read theory" at that guy's not moving them to the left. It, it, even if it moves them to the left, what does that do for them? It's just like here, read capital. Great. Now what? well uh, read this. Like because you you never actually have a a solution other than just handing them more books. And so yeah, I mean, cancel if you want to, but like. Theory is the thing you do post-revolution. Theory is not necessary towards revolution. Like practical, functioning, organizational work is is there, right? Um, you've got to like, you got to do things. Like so, um, in that section, right? I I throw up some book recommendations. These are things that are great, great books um, that I recommend everybody read. Uh, Jared Diamond's *The World Until Yesterday* is um that's about those societies and and Papua New Guinea. Uh, He's got some really interesting comparative thoughts on the benefits of, like, modern society versus older ones. It's kind of, the idea is, what can we learn from these societies that basically never evolved, didn't have technology, yet they're basically doing just as good, if not better, than we are right now? Um, Why? Like, why is it that these people are, like, thriving when, like, they have no iPhone, right? Like, how how thrive no iPhone, you know? Um, So that's, that's an interesting question, and I think it's one that we need... Now, I am not like some sort of primitivist, right? I'm not suggesting that we abandon all technology. I think technology is super valuable. And I think it obviously has a place in um, anarchism. And, and a lot of the articles that I've been writing you know, as we move kind of into more practical things, it involves utilizing technology in a functional way that helps push the revolution forward. I, obviously, we're gonna get to a certain point where at least for a short period of time, post-revolution, like you're not gonna have access to Twitter but i mean suck it up it mean, just it is what it is right like not all of these things are super important um especially if like if we have to make the choice between uh should we have twitter or should we have equality for black and brown people um i'm gonna abandon twitter yesterday you know <laughs> like it's like fuck twitter So sucks like you know what i mean so then, like that's where we really need to be kind of you know putting our mind and thinking on those things um so there's a few books here by Scott Crow. Um, just some interesting backstory on this uh scott crow uh grew up in chicago he was he was kidded in chicago and he uh his family was abjectly poor and he was fed by those black panther party breakfast pro- education programs um and that's what made him an anarchist right like he got to sit around and just like kind of have these like little anarchist communist socialist conversations with people like fred hampton and aaron dixon and huey newton uh while getting to eat breakfast and then seeing that like revolutionary work in practice like seeing seeing people walk the walk you know where it's like fred hampton's giving a speech about like socialism and the value and like then turning around he's like i gotta cut this speech short because i need to go feed some kids like that's that's so much more meaningful than just being like all right so i'm just gonna stand up here and yak more about karl marx right like Um, so he's, he had some interesting things. Um, so one of them, uh, the Black Flags and Windmills is a really interesting book. It's, uh, Katrina hits New Orleans. Obviously we know that the government just abandoned everybody there, left them high and dry. And so he, uh, as well as a couple of others, they went to help how they could. They had a boat, they had a truck. So they drove out there. He was living in Texas somewhere at the time. And so that book covers all these lessons that he learned because basically what had happened is New Orleans had post Katrina become an anarchist city. like all those people just they built a commune out of out of the rubble of Katrina and they just took care of themselves. they didn't they didn't need the government. they figured out how to do it without them and they just got it done. Um, and so he's got some really interesting kind of conversations about that. Uh, his other book, Emergency Hearts, Molotov Dreams, is uh, just his kind of musings and conversations that he's had with all these different people. It's like interviews that he's had um, about anarchism. I put that the actual the, the actual value of this book is in a section towards the end. It's about 10 pages worth of recommendations on like books, websites, utilities for anarchism. And it focuses on stuff written by members of the White Panther Party, women, non-white anarchists, there's a lot of really, really good stuff in there. So if you're going to be one of those like, I just need to like invest or ingest a ton of theory, like I I have to have the theory, like then I would pick up a copy of that book if, for no other reason than the reading list, um, and to support you know a really a really awesome dude.
0: We have a we have a question um we have a question in the chat for you about anarchism before we finish this segment up, and the comment is on YouTube. It's by Fuzz the Fair. Um, I'll put this on the screen so everyone can see it. I think it's a really good question that uh, I'm excited for you to review. Okay, it says, "How does anarchism intend to solve the problem of capitalism's international corporation relationships that already fund private army death squads in the global south?" You know, so I guess what they're asking is, is how does how would how would the anarchic or how would anarchism itself Fight against those type of evils.
1: Absolutely right. So those, see, the the big thing with with those kinds of exploitative, uh, let's call them mini governments, right? Because that's what some of those like major corporations are, right? They're they're really to the some degree like mini governments. You can, um, when you get to a point where you exit the system, which is kind of the end goal for anarchism, you bring about that proper revolution. Right. And I, and I outline it in a few different things. Um, I think it'll be the next thing we talk about, right? The, the goal is once you exit the system, most of these companies, most of these things, they're literally only propped up basically because of their, like their stock value. And they like, you know, like the, their kind of investments in the money that they have in this, like American capitalist, like system that we've got. So if, if you do like a functioning like mass exit so a debt strike a general strike etc you pull out your labor you're not making purchases because they're no longer necessary um all these types of things most of those country uh, companies just they collapse right and for their death squads and their other things right like they're just like those people are mercenaries right they're going to go where the money is and if that company doesn't have the money to pay them anymore they're not going to be there uh we just we've seen that happen hundreds and hundreds of times um, and I, think, I mean, the thing is, is while I understand not everybody enjoys talking about violent revolution, right? We always wanted to be nonviolent if we can. Um, it, anarchism is also perfectly fine with just, you know, torturing those folks. Like, it's just, at the end of the day, um, if you've got to, like, if you've got to go out and liberate some folks, you, you've got to go liberate some folks. And it just, it is what it is. So there's... There's a lot of conversation and strategy that's related there. Um, it, realistically, the funny thing about it is, is anarchists are going to handle a lot of these problems in a similar way to that, like, communists are going to handle these problems. The primary difference between communism and anarchism is that communism is just anarchism with a lot of extra steps. Right? Because, like, the end result of communism is anarchism. It is a stateless, classless, moneyless society with like full horizontal like organization and no like leadership, right? Communists just believe that in order to get that, like you have to you have to move through these stages. You have to have, go through a socialist stage and then the dictatorship of the proletariat, and then this thing, and then this thing, and then this thing, and eventually all these distinctions slowly wither away over time. You end up in that system. Anarchists. Um, the white anarchists, as it were, like the Peter and the Emma Goldmans, they basically believe you get enough leftists with an AR-15, you can just get the job done in a week. And then, you know, you just get onto the stateless classless, moneyless society, right? So that's, um, which again, that's which is why I wanna make sure that we, we draw those distinctions between white anarchism versus traditional anarchism, because they're going, like traditional anarchist systems are going to, they're gonna solve a lot of those problems that the white anarchist has of, like, well, what happens once you, like, revolt and then there's, like, no power, food, or water, and then you all just, like, starve to death. And, you know, because that's the thing. It's like, oh, great, we revolted, now what? You know? So that was always historically kind of, like, a theoretical framework issue with the with white anarchism. But, like, you know, actual traditional anarchism, like, historically, doesn't have that problem, right? Because you have sustainable food sources. You have sustainable, like, energy and water and these types of things, like... You have this relationship with with the world, with the earth, with nature, then you don't run into as many of those problems.
0: So what you're explaining right now is that um, the white anarchism, what you're explaining basically is, is that it's a little bit more reactionary. Like, hey, let's go, let's 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 yeah. do this, and then okay, now what? Well, you're saying the more traditional sense of anarchism is before you even get to that final step there's multiple steps before then about, you know, there's let's say like you mentioned earlier on the show about how, hey, let's, uh, let's feed each other. Let's cool each other. Let's make sure we have the right water. Let's make sure our communities are safer. Make sure we have all these uh, safety nets that we've created for ourselves available and ready. So then we go to the final step. If we win, that's just a bonus. And yeah. you win something, you lose something. If you lose, at least you still have something left that you can lean back on to rebuild the movement and make it easier.
1: Yeah, and and of course, like in the in the system that I'm proposing as well, what I call the practical anarchism, right? You, it's a lot easier to win, um, than in a traditional anarchism because you're not basically having to go to war with the American army, right? What you're doing is you're collapsing the entire system, uh, kind of from the inside and in a way that it's just not prepared to defend itself on, right? People often think that our 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 economy is like built in such a way it's like sure it crashes all the time but it's like it's actually it's really pretty strong if you think about it it's not like it's super fragile um you know there's there's some people there's some uh academics and economists and things like that who, who have written articles uh i don't remember exactly who because uh, it's been years since i've read them in college, uh, who talked about like basically a three-week long general strike would uh fully collapse the entire American economy, right? Like, and I'm we're talking even worse than like Great Depression. Like, like the like America as a country just ends on a three-week general strike. Um like the stock markets can't support it, like this the entire system cannot support um not exploiting workers for three weeks, right? Which is why, like you saw, like so many problems with, like, COVID here just this last year, right? You know, just taking, you know, like, having to take two weeks off and only have grocery workers was absolutely detrimental to the United States. People were talking about, like, whether or not we survived this thing. So now all you do is you go, okay, cool, grocery workers, go home. So, like, if if we literally were, like, on the verge of collapsing as a nation with, all, with the essential workers still at it, Now let's send the essential workers home. And then then what? Now it's all over, right? And so that's the the thing is is that now you have all the things in place so that when everybody just goes home and takes a two to three week vacation, and that's really what it is, it's like, hey, go go play in your garden, go read some theory for two weeks, um, and we'll see you guys on the other side. Um, And that's that, right? And so there'll be some humming and hawing for the first few days, and then there'll be probably some skirmishing as the government starts to try and send cops in to, to wrangle people back to work, you know, because the economy's collapsing. But, I mean, the thing is, is if, if you follow the steps, you can hold on. And all of a sudden, hey, you're you're seeing the light at the other side of the tunnel. And at the worst case scenario, right, this is the nice thing about this, is the worst case scenario is, you know, maybe they make some concessions or they're willing to do a bunch of things. You You might end up with just, like, really good socialism where they're just like, all right, look, we're going to give everybody, like, Ubi and healthcare and every, we'll just give you anything you want if you just go back to work. Please, the love God. Don't crash the system, right? You can just make all kinds of just like awful, just ridiculous demands. You're just like, we all get to be millionaires. We all get free yachts. We all get whatever, and they're just like, fine, done. Here you go. Just like here, we're done. Just like and so just done.
0: to just to recap what you're saying, you made two good points, right? And so the, the point you make too about the comparison with the uh, anarchy uh, scenario you made before, which how it pertains to America and uh, COVID. Um, we could have yeah. had a general strike We could, if all like the so-called um, essential workers that the United States government labeled them just to force them to basically be subservient to capitalism. Like yeah. if we convinced those workers and set up mutual aid and sort of different programs as lefties to do to support them and ask them to leave their job, we could have. And the response to this was because the COVID relief packages you know, the HEROES Act, the CARES Act, which really is the largest upward transfer of wealth in American history in terms of tax dollars, right? You're allowed, you're giving uh, 90% of America's money to these big, rich, oligarch, asshole corporations who don't even pay taxes, right? right. With the snap of a finger. And even with, and through that legislation, the Federal Reserve, also the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, they can just give the money out whenever they want because they used the same tools under the 2008 uh, financial crisis in which they said, hey, We've learned our lesson. We're not going to beg the Congress next time around, put it in a legislation where you have an automatic ticker. So we fuck up, you just give us the money and you don't even have to vote on it. That's not even a democracy, right? Yeah,
1: no, exactly. Right. And that's it. We're, we live, we clearly live in an, in an oligarchy, right? It's it's not like even like, so do we a democracy? It's representative. No, it's not a republic. It's not an, It's an oligarchy. It's just not even close. You know, and anybody who's still arguing in favor of like that we're something else, like, yeah, no, you're just mistaken or you get your head up your ass because you're just not wanting to admit what your eyeballs are talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, is like, we've, we've been very close a couple of times, uh, over the last, probably let's call it 12 to 15 years where workers could have just absolutely just chokeholded the system and, and won so many things. Um, but they just didn't Right? They were just scared to, to take that leap because we didn't have any of those mutual aid uh systems in place right so my kind of the point of the substack and the point of what we're doing here is this is a how-to on building those mutual aid networks my last two articles and then my my next one on monday is going to be a three-part thing on like this let's start talking let's start a conversation about how we build mutual aid networks like what technology do we want to be still implementing um how are we going to utilize things like community defense? Like, how do we transfer money? How do we make sure that people are fed? Like, and we can get into that some other time. But I mean, like, that's that's the big thing. It's just like, look, if we're serious and we really start putting some actual effort, like, we all stop being armchair theorists, stop screaming read theory at each other, and, like, stop letting Nazis into the group, like, and just get to work, we can go and build functioning mutual aid networks and, and get a lot of stuff done. And like, I do foresee like a uh, a really short amount of time that we can, we can bang out a revolution real fast, actually. Like, I, I kind of, I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that in 12 to 18 months, you could easily like have all the infrastructure in place that you need, that you could just revolt at any given moment. And that alone there is the power, right? The power of a protest and the power of direct action is because there's that that fuck around and find out thing, right? Without the find out, the fuck around doesn't mean anything, you know? And so, like, if we build all these networks, if we have all these things in place, and, it, you know, we spend a year and a half and we just bust our asses and we get all this done, then all of a sudden it's really, really easy to just say, hey, fuck around and find out. And then like now for them they have to they really like the system the oppressors the oligarchs they've really got to start weighing their kind of cost benefit analysis and they've got to start doing all this kind of calculus and be like do we do we try to find out like shit man i don't know i think they're going to be mostly okay like we you know so it just like giving yourself that power is that's the key and but you got to get up and work for it right so Hopefully that answers the question for the, the gentleman on the
0: party. Yeah, I think, that's, I think I think you explained that uh, fairly well. I do want to get to the last pit of your article. We'll talk about it for like the next 10 or 15 minutes, sure. and then we'll wrap up and uh, endorse your article again. But in your article, you wanted to talk about, uh, you wrote another great piece that I liked called okay. Five Steps to a Nonviolent Revolution. Now, the last topic we talked about, okay, yes, there are some parts, there are some times where things can get... Uh, can't get violent, but you led up to the steps of how you can help your own fellow lefties. So if it does go a certain way, if you win, okay, great. If you lose, here's something you can fall back back upon. Mm-hmm. And this article really explains what you can do uh, to have a nonviolent revolution. We don't have to have mass casualties, where you don't have to really uh, put people in harm's way. Mm-hmm. And so uh, give us a brief intro of that, and I can put that on the screen for our audience.
1: So, so this is it, right? This is really kind of like the whole synopsis of like my entire kind of belief system about revolutionary politics, right? I think, um, I don't know, like, you know, I, I joke in one of my, my more recent articles, I think it was one of the day. Um, I don't have a ton of like hubris when it comes to like political theory type stuff. Like uh, it's not nearly as much anyways as like when you go to the grocery store and you're like, I don't need a cart. And you're like walking around with 500 items in your hand because you, you thought you can get away without a basket. But it's like, this is one of those things where it's like, I, like, I'm super confident that this, like, we can boil down everything we need into five things, right? Basically, food security and food sovereignty, um, community defense, community organizing, what I call skill exchange, and then uh, the kind of theory at the end, right? And so, you know, we've talked a little bit about... So we've talked plenty to think about Oh, and here.
0: sorry, I'm going to have to interrupt you for a second. So for our radio audience on VOP USA, so on his actual article titled Five Steps to a Nonviolent Revolution, it shows like a little chart. And so what that chart entails, it has like a five-step program. So the bottom, start, bottom chart is like the baseline, which is physiological needs, which is air, water, food, shelter, clothing, sleep, and reproduction. Um, the next tier that goes on top is safety needs, which is personal security, uh, like self-arming yourself, um, employment, uh, yeah. resources, you, health, property. You can, you
1: can look this up pretty easily. This is what's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Uh, so I recommend if you're listening and just Google that. It's a super easy kind of, it, like it's pretty common for most people who've heard it that way. Uh, I'll let you kind of finish rolling through that. But yeah, for those who just want to dig deep into this, yeah, this is Maslow's Hierarchy.
0: Right. And then the third one on top of that for our radio audience as well that can't really uh, see it, um, is the next one is Love and Belonging. And so love and belonging is like friendship intimacy family sense of connection so and then the next one on top is esteem where like uh, respect self-esteem status recognition strength freedom and the finest one final one is self-actualization which is like a desire to be to be the most that one can be and so all these steps of like okay you want to have food and water that helps out Um, really protecting each other love self-esteem and self-actualization that kind of really helps you not only understand people, but to really build something from the ground up. And so, yeah, you can keep going, uh, explain the rest.
1: Sure, yeah. So like in that kind of Maslow system, right? Like the idea is that as human beings, um, you know, like if all of our very baseline level needs are controlled by some other, you're not gonna get any sort of working attempt towards revolutionary progress, right? You don't get to try and focus on your self-esteem or finding meaningful relationships in the world or having like any semblance of self-actualization, if you have some sort of oligarchical overlord who his control has full control over your like your time and your energy and your sleep schedule and whether or not you get enough money to buy food, water, or shelter, right? So you know food. So and that's step one, right? Food security, food sovereignty. That's like you need to learn how to grow your own food. You need access to things like water and power. And I, I know for a ton of people, right, like, they, they kind of jokingly tell their friends, they're like, oh, I've got a black thumb or a brown thumb or whatever. And it's like, I just kill, I can't even keep a houseplant, right? Like, I'll kill a houseplant. So, look, here's here's the thing. One, houseplants are super finicky and they'll just die out of nowhere. Like, <laughs> like there's just, like, houseplants, no matter how good you take care of them, sometimes they're just like, eh, I don't vibe with this dirt. And then they'll just die. So don't let your ability to maintain a houseplant, like, determine whether or not you think you can grow You absolutely can. Food is literally the easiest thing in the world to grow. One, when I was living in Alabama, I took, like, I ended up having, like, this, like, two-week stretch at work where I was, like, wasn't, like, working, right? They just wanted me supervising this, like, uh, particular crew who was, like, I was working for the university there, and uh, they had a bunch of people who were having to go into, like, student rooms and do contractor work. And so my job, like, as a representative of the university is just sit on the couch and make sure these guys don't steal it. Um, so I literally just sat on my phone and like, I was playing games and goofing off. And then after a while, I was like, I didn't have anything to do. So I just started trolling YouTube. I ended up probably spending like 70 hours watching like gardening videos, like how to garden. And I just got, I got hooked. I was like, dude, I can do this. Like, I'm going to go start gardening in my backyard. And so I did. And, uh, the next year after I had put in all of this effort, um, we spent that entire summer not having to go to the grocery store. Like, I had basically a 100-square-foot section in my backyard that I grew so much food that I was able to support a family of three. A hundred square feet. And it's super easy to do. It took, like, zero, like, I mean, it takes some hard work. But, like, if you put in enough work up front and you do kind of follow a lot of the steps, I have a bunch of links in that article. I recommend everybody just kind of go see it. Um, There's a bunch of different YouTube channels that I recommend. They're phenomenal at explaining full breakdowns how you making care for soil how you care for chickens and build compost or like grow any given type of plant or any of these other things they have everything you need to know about growing food and it's it's literally idiot proof um i was the same way for a long time i was like i couldn't take care of houseplants. i was like i couldn't grow anything i watched this one guy his name is mi gardener this youtube channel i watched like all of his videos i i had so much food i was just like giving it away it was great right so it's like there's it's really, really simple. But there's, so there's some things that go in with that as well. Like, you gotta be able to, like, set up systems by which you can collect water. I know that's illegal in most places across the United States. Fuck them. You know, I mean, like, I don't, I don't give a shit. Lots of stuff's illegal. Um, you Do it anyways, right? Like, most of us, like, still get to go smoke a dude, you know? Like, that's illegal. Who gives a shit? So it's like, yeah, collect water. You know, it's a thing you need right? Don't, don't let the government tell you you can't have it. Um, and then like power security, right? I have a whole like very kind of anarchist thing about like if you live in a single family home like and that guy comes by and he knocks on your door and it's like, hey, would you like to sign up for solar? Just say yes. Like let him install a solar system on your house. Like make sure that you set it up so it's not like connected to the grid, right? And then when the push comes to shove and it's time to revolt, you're just like, cool, I'm not paying this anymore. What are they going to do? Like if, if every single one of their customers in town just stops paying like then they're out of business the end all right cool well the system's already connected to your house like and if you're willing to defend it they're not going to come take it back from you so and there you go now you got free power cool yeah,
0: yeah i think so, that's a good idea really to take advantage of yeah, really an yeah. opportunity to be autonomous i think it's yeah. a good example you, you did because if <laughs> someone asks you, you like system. exactly yeah.
1: Like that's the thing is, and then you know, look, like, I have a good friend. His name is Jemiah Hargens, and I, I absolutely recommend everybody go check him out. He's on Instagram he's, uh, at Black Super Dad. He um he started an organization out in Los Angeles called Crop Swap LA. So if you're on the LA area, um you might also notice West Adams Crop Swap. Like go work with that guy. Go talk to him about stuff. Basically, what he did is he he put a couple of planter boxes in his backyard for grown some food. Talked to all of his neighbors, convinced them to do the same thing. And then they all ended up having way more food than they knew what to do with and so they start they they agreed that every sunday morning before church they were all going to just like meet up in his backyard and swap the harvest and so um they ended up doing it and within like a couple of weeks of getting everything started there were like 15 20 people meeting in this backyard and swapping vegetables and greens and like carrots and potatoes and collards and whatever else and fruits that they grew from the fruit trees they planted and because everybody basically just planted like two, four by eight beds and was investing 10 minutes a day in caring for them, every single one of them has enough food that they don't need to go to the grocery store for any of their produce. So from there, like I extrapolate out, like if you get, I don't know, one or two of your neighbors to also grow chi- like raise chickens, you know, for eggs and stuff, congratulations, all your protein needs you met, none of you have to go to the grocery store. Like it's, it's that thing, it's organizing in your community, in your immediate neighborhood, it's building those connections, building those relationships, doing those types of things that garners and ensures food security for you, right?
0: And, have, and we have a question in the chat too, from another great question from Fuzz the Fair on YouTube. Um, I'll put the question on the screen for everyone to see. I think it's a good question because you've talked about, hey, lefties, uh, we could use we could find ways for offense, but how do we keep our resources after we get the victory? So the question says is, wait, how, how are revolutionary gains supposed to be protected with nonviolence from the capitalists who still have all their wealth intact, tech, if not if not state exists to stop them? So what's your how do you, how would you respond to that?
1: So there's two things to that. One, uh, the state doesn't exist to stop them. Right. Like the state exists to maintain them. Right. Uh, so you don't need the state to knock them out. Right, and then two, like those revolutionary gains. Right, if you exit the system, and you crash the economy. Uh, then they, then they don't have any gains. Right, the the American dollar is no longer worth anything. You're looking at like, there's that South Africa, right, that had to like recently cut like eighteen zeros off of their money because their money's not worth anything. Right, you end up in a, this like hyperinflationary thing. The only thing that's preventing the United States right now from being in that hyperinflation zone is that the United States is just not. Right? Like, they just, they've arbitrarily decided to just not be in hyperinflation. Money isn't real. It's not backed by anything. It's it's not, like, it's literally just paper. And, and nowadays, it's just numbers in a computer, right? So we saw this, like, with the, that CARES Act, you know, that R.J. had mentioned earlier. You know, they're just like, oh, no, like, all oh, these companies are hurting. So, like, the United States government is just like, here's one and a half trillion dollars. Where did that come from? Nowhere. Literally came from nowhere. They just, like, they just made it up. Like, because that's how money works right now. Fiat currency is an absolute, like, joke, right? So their their power exists only in the belief that their power exists. And so once you get those revolutionary gains, because what, what you're really gaining in that is the understanding that that power isn't real, and that their money isn't real, and that they don't need or have any reason to control you, and you don't need any of that bullshit, and so once you accept that and everybody accepts that premise right then it's like oh cool well that's the end of that so um and then of course you know we do have like step two right of of the program is uh community defense right which look if you, it ain't yours if you can't protect it right so like look you, you know while i do think you can um have nonviolent revolution i do believe you should also own a gun you should know how to use it and you should be good at it right? Like, so I kind of say in these little like key points here, it's like the means of investing time at a range, practicing with your weapon of choice so you're comfortable capable of shooting the thing attacking you and not like some guy on your team. And so for those of you who don't know, I also have some links in here too that are pretty good. Um, there's a firearm YouTube channel called Honest Outlaw. Uh, I'm not sure what their politics are like. Um, I don't know, most people who do gun stuff on YouTube are generally pretty conservative. But this person is like, they're really rock solid they they do a great job explaining um like weapons weapon handling uh how to tell whether or not a gun's any good they've got hundreds and hundreds of like review videos of like cheap firearms things that are like sub two three hundred dollars that you can get that are very good at defending you and your home your property and so when you have that conversation where it's like you know inside this it's a multi-pronged approach right know your neighbors so there's this great news article that came out many years ago uh, about cops were never capable of infiltrating anarchist movements right like you know they could they could get in and bust up communist meetings and groupings all the time and and so but they could never make it out in infiltrating anarchist communities because two things one uh anarchists read too much theory and like generally are kind of like pedantic and will quiz people on stuff all the time Um, and so cops always got busted because they never actually read any of their books uh, B, you can't cut any of their funding because it's just a loose network of poor people. Uh, so there's no funding to be cut, right? It's just, there's not like some sort of like, ha we've taken away their money. Oh, they don't use money. They all operate on a barter system, like in a crops a lot. So was like, oh shit. And then, you know, they're almost always immediately out of this because everybody knows everybody in their community, right? So some random new dipshit shows up. And so everybody's immediately kind of suspicious of them and they get outed pretty quickly. Um, I have a link to it on that as well. Like I, I think it's super fun to read. It's, it's one of those things where, like, yeah, it's, it's easy to kind of protect the things that you have if you invest the time and the energy into actually going out and getting to know your neighbors. And then so understand your neighborhood and its gaps, right? So there's a re- reason medieval castles and townships had walls around them. Your community doesn't necessarily need a moat, but you need to understand where threats come from and what like kind of thing systems you can have in place for protecting those right don't always put your food like grow your food in your backyard in a way that somebody can just like you know drop poison right over the fence like indiscriminately um and poison your food source right like keep that stuff in a way that's easier to protect little things like that right but a lot of it too is yeah it's it's having good proper community organizing good community relationships um and in like my most recent article i talk a little bit about it like one of the things that I use as a huge example when i'm talking to people in person about this stuff is what we call penny auctions they were huge in the 30s during the great depression era basically what happens is a bank would try to foreclose on some guy's farm and then so all the local farmers would show up with their guns and they would stand there quietly um and then the guy would bid like 10 cents to buy back his horse and 15 cents to buy back his pickup truck you know, 10 cents to buy back his house and 10 cents to buy all of his farmland. And so, like, even though the bank's like, hey, you owe, like, you know, $8,000 for all of your equipment and everything else, he'd, he'd get it all back for, like, three bucks. And everybody just sit there quietly, ready to rock and roll if needed. And the poor schlub who's running the auction just have to kind of s- sadly sell back this guy all of his stuff at pennies on the dollar and it was an absolutely revolutionary method by which people kept their farms and their homes uh, away from like a predatory oligarchical system that was trying to just foreclose on it and we have to be willing to do the same thing now i believe that in your neighborhoods you should all be armed you should all be ready to rock and roll and if somebody's showing up to evict your neighbor you should all go and prevent that eviction. we've seen it happen we've we've watched live footage on different parts of Twitter, like, there was one, it was, like, two months ago, cops tried rolling through this place, I think it was in California, and everybody just started chucking bricks and rocks at the cop cars before they even get out of the car. That person didn't get evicted, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, they chained you know,
0: themselves to the buildings. No, we yeah, see that a lot. Yeah, they're
1: just like, no, nah, fuck that. Like, you're not taking them. People, like, and when the cops do get out of the car, like, everybody just, like, kind of mobs onto the cars, they're just like, no, like, this is, you're not coming out of here. It's like, you need to really reconsider, like, do you want to go home and see your family or do you want to evict this person? You only get to do one. So it's like when you build that kind of solidarity with your, with your neighborhood, with your community, with workers, and you, and you start pushing back against that oppressive class, um, it's a lot easier to keep your gains because at the end of the day, like, especially like the people who would be coming to take them from you, it's going to be cops. These people are getting paid like $11 an hour some of them do the job because they enjoy all of the power and prestige that they get with it. Um, some of them do it because they they have to or whatever. They feel that that's the only thing that they're qualified to do because they're dumb. Like right? cops specifically hire people who are dumb. Um, there's all kinds of fun studies about that. Like if you're like too smart, you're not allowed to be a cop. Though. Like they won't let you in the academy. But the thing is, is like every single one of them, like they're not they're not dying for twelve dollars an hour. Man. Like they're not they're not gonna they don't want that smoke. Like, so it's like if you're willing to apply that pressure, they're going to back off every single time because they are. Right. Racist,
0: right? And I hate to interrupt you because we have like a minute left. But okay. our last comment that we had is that from VOP USA, so our radio source, Um, we have a uh, uh, name uh, um, Ace Chaotic. She calls she calls herself an anarchist, mm-hmm. um, really an anarcho-syndicalist. Um, cool. So what kind of anarchist are you? And then we can close from there
1: um oh, that's tough i mean i don't know that i have like i guess probably communalist would be the closest thing um because yeah i just i think syndicalism potentially runs into a few problems of not really abolishing capitalism in a way that works um it still leaves some of those like tendrils behind that allows it to like re regain its footing um if you push into a like a much hard line, much more hardline, like anarcho-communalist uh, system, you can you can just really like cut those tethers and, and move forward. Back.
0: Right. And I want to thank you for coming on to spend this time to really we really dived into it today, especially um, how to build a movement overall. We talked about the policies, how to change them to make them better, further left. And we also had a really a great uh, engagement and discussion to talk about anarchism. So uh, I do want to give you this last uh, minute to really plug anything that you have and to also plug your Substack.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I guess, yeah, real quick, uh, earthquake.substack.com, uh, check that out. Uh, subscribe if you like. Um, one of the big things that I will say to you real fast is that if you subscribe, um, that money goes to mutual aid projects. Like that's that money's not going in my pocket. Um, this, this money is just strictly for raising funds to help start some mutual aids and start doing more of this, like, practical anarchism here in Albuquerque and other cities at large, depending on who needs it. Um, if you're broke, like, I totally get that, you can go to earthquake.substack.com slash, mutual aid, and you can subscribe for only a dollar a month and get all the same, you know, so that's, uh, all the benefits. I try to keep everything free on Substack, even though, like, I could charge subscriptions because, like, I believe information should be free. The only other thing I'll plug is have everybody go to uh NASO.network. onetwork um, That's the North Alabama School for Organizing. If you really want to just like throw some money at something, I would rather you throw the money at that. Um, this is a really, really good organization that is doing a lot of good uh, political leftist um, education. And uh, so, yeah, the more funds we get, the, the more cool things we can do uh, with that organization. Um, it helps support basically some former... Uh, so one of the co-founders of the Young Patriots organization is also a co-founder with me on that project. And so yeah let's let's do more revolutionary politics. So um, that's the big thing. I think uh, if I could give any one piece of advice to anybody, it's just like get out and get it done. Um, it's easier than you think it is. It's like it's scary as fuck. like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie about that, right? Like getting out and doing proper revolutionary stuff is terrifying, but it has to get done. You know, it's just like sooner or later, we're all going to get screwed, the climate disaster, all these other things. Uh, some some generation is going to get stuck holding the bag. Um, and I'd rather it be mine than my kids. So let's let's do it that way.
0: Major respect for you, man, for coming on to engage with this. Uh, I've known you for a while, so I've been yeah. waiting to have an opportunity to have you on to have this discussion Um his Twitter is uh, Earthquake uh, Photography, uh, just in case you guys want to send him some hate mail if you hate what he had to say today. <laughs> <I hate all laughs> he doesn't that back that. down. Just fair warning, he doesn't back down. I, I don't, so, man.
1: I'm, I'm just as say I'm probably more hateful. So, like, however hateful <laughs> you think you're going to be, I'm just going to be awful, right? Because, like, I don't care about debate bro culture. I will just levy a barrage of ad hominems. It means nothing to me. I'll call you names. I don't, I don't care. But, RJ, man, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh I have so much respect for you and all the work that you're doing. Uh I think this is one of the best uh podcast slash streams that y'all can watch on the internet. Like so if you're not subscribed to this guy, like to RJ on any one of his different platforms, or if you've got some cash in your pocket, give it to this man. He deserves every single penny of it. Um yeah, let's let's like let's stop having like doofuses like Jimmy Dore be famous. Let's have RJ be famous, right? Like cornell west part two
0: thank you i appreciate it you guys can follow me on uh, comrade curls that is my twitter name i want to thank our vop usa audience on radio who listened to the first time i appreciate you hopefully you guys can come back next week i'll be on regularly at 6 p.m eastern standard time to 8 p.m eastern standard time so i'll be consistent for you guys uh thank you to our youtube watchers make sure to subscribe on youtube on uh, twitter and uh Follow us on Twitter, uh, subscribe on Twitch as well. I want to thank you guys. Um, This has been The RJ Show on the Fred Hampton Leftist Network, and we are signing out.